You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Well, um, speaking of wisdom, uh, we are in the wisdom book, Ecclesiastes, we're nearing the end now, actually, um, only just a few, a few more of these lessons to go. And today we're hearing from Ecclesiastes 11. So um, Liz Foreman is our reader today, so let's hear God's word. A reading from the 11th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Liz. Uh, Who's here has played Monopoly before? Any of you kids played Monopoly? You know, it's one of, I think it's, in the top three most popular board games um, ever made. Um, Also, many people hate it, uh, including me. Uh, I played it a lot as a child, and it was a popular game in my family growing up. Um, And I never won because, looking back on it, I had a terribly flawed strategy. Basically, I never wanted to spend any of my money. Uh, And so if I landed on a property... Um, I would calculate how much it would cost, and I would say, oh, no, 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 I just, I, you know, I can't afford this because you just don't know what might happen, right? You might land on chance and have to pay uh, a fine, or you might land on community chest and have to pay taxes, or you might land on someone else's property and have to pay a costly rental fee. Um, and so, you know, I just don't know what would happen. So I better just play it safe. Well, you can see, right, the, the terrible flaw in my thinking, uh, because I wanted to hoard my money just in case I needed to use it, but by doing so and not investing in any property, I was actually guaranteeing what? My own downfall, right? <laughs> so my, in, in light of all the uncertainty of the game, my strategy was to keep all of my money, but ironically, the real pathway to victory in that game is to lose it, to invest it. So we're nearing the end of this book. Um, Kohelet has been reinforcing uh, all of his teaching. He's recapitulating, really, what he has said throughout the book, that life is uncertain, the world is scary and chaotic and unpredictable. But as we near the end of the book, he is beginning to offer more and more explicit guidance about how he thinks we humans should live in light of all this uncertainty. And so today, um, his vice is very interesting. He says, the world is so uncertain. There are so many disasters that could happen There are so many things that could go wrong. Life is like a scary monopoly game in which there are unpredictable dangers around every turn. So what should you do? The opposite of what I did as a child, you should go crazy. 
and take risks and invest and spend and lose. Invest yourself, invest your stuff, your life, because in the end, he says, wisdom is found not in what you keep, but in what you lose. Not in what you keep, but in what you lose. It's upside down wisdom, but this is what he offers. Okay, so first let's look at the uncertainty of life. Some fascinating nuggets of wisdom in these six verses. He spends uh, these verses highlighting several major uncertainties about life in the world. Just let's, let's look at a few of them. First, he says the future is uncertain, verses one through four. Verse one starts with this weird picture of waterlogged bread. We'll get back to that in just a moment. But notice verse two, what he says about the future. He says, you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. He's already brought this up many times in the book that as much as we try to control the future, you can never control it. You can never predict yourself against whatever disaster might befall you. And ultimately, our futures are all out of our control. Of course, there are some things that we have a general sense of, right? He says in verse three, if the clouds are dark and brooding, you know it's gonna rain, but that's really the limit of your knowledge. Uh, because, you know, if you think about it, and no offense to any meteorologists in the room, even with, even with all of the modern tools of meteorology, we still do a pretty lousy job predicting this. Um, on Friday, I had a roofer come to my house. Um, we had some significant roof work that we needed done, and I said, are you sure you should do this today? Because I think there's rain in the forecast. He said, oh, no, 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 it's just going to sprinkle. Well, guess what? It poured. <laughs> you just don't know. Um, he says in verse 3 also, when you cut down a tree, you do know it's going to fall, but ultimately, you don't really have any idea exactly where it's going to land. My dad and I um, felled a tree in my yard about 10 years ago, uh, and we meant for it to fall that way, and instead it fell this way, and it landed on our house. Um, don't worry, everybody was okay. <laughs> but the point is this, is that disaster uh, will just strike when you least expect it. You can't control the future. And just this week, um, one of you told me that her um, sister-in-law and husband, um, who were retired in very good health, um, many happy years of retirement ahead, um, went on a European vacation, prepared to have a wonderful time, but during the trip, the wife got sick, she was hospitalized, and then died. And the husband returned from the vacation to his house alone. So sometimes we get a long time to prepare for death. We have a long time to say goodbye. But sometimes someone is on vacation, or someone runs out to get some milk, or someone goes out for a morning jog, and disaster strikes. I think we all know in theory that the future is uncertain, but in reality, I mean, we really live like the opposite is true. We have plans. Do you have plans for this week? Do you have plans for next month? Do you have plans for maybe a vacation in the spring? I mean, that's normal, but do you ever just kind of hold in the back of your mind that you have no idea whether those things will actually come to pass? Do you look at that vacation you have planned for early May and think that might not actually happen? You probably don't, but what if you did? How would that change the way you live? Don't know the future. Second, not only is the future uncertain, but God's ways are uncertain. He says in verse five, as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Now, some of you smarty pants out there might say, uh-huh, you ancient man, we, we know those things now. Really? I mean, we know weather patterns. You can build wind farms, but do you really know where wind comes from and can you really track it and do you really know where it's going? No. 
I mean, we can get a, a 3D ultrasound image of a baby in the womb, but do you really know how cells divide in the right time in the perfect way so this little part becomes a toe and this little part becomes an ear and so that ultimately this person is infused with a soul? Do you know those things? No. The teacher says that in all that we do and accomplish, there are certain things that only God can do. We can work, we can manage, we can steward, we can cultivate, but only God makes, only God creates. I love at the end of the book of Job, uh, where God shows up after all of these men have been, you know, intellectualizing uh, about the mysteries of the world, and God shows up and says, okay, smarty pants, were you there when the foundations of the earth were laid? Have you set the constellations in the sky? Do you let go the lightning as it crashes across the dark? Have you commanded the morning to come forth in the dawn? And of course, in every question, Job must answer, no. Because by taking him on a tour of the edges of the universe, God shows Job and us the unfathomable depths of his divine knowledge compared to what we humans can grasp with our tiny minds. So this is one of the great lessons of Ecclesiastes. There's so much you don't know, and trying to know it, trying to assume knowledge about life and the future and the way things will go and the way things work, and living your life as if you know those things is actually the height of foolishness. So the future is uncertain. God's ways are uncertain. And finally, he says, our success is uncertain. Verse six, you do not know what will succeed, whether this or that. Look, we all wanna be successful. Nobody aims at failure. Every human wants to make an impact. We wanna make a difference in the world. We wanna achieve, and yet, ultimately, we don't know whether in the end we will make a difference and hit the mark or whether what we do with our life will end up being making no difference whatsoever. We just can't control that. Sometimes even the things that we do that are deemed successful at the time end up being the things that we most regret. I don't know if any of y'all saw that truly amazing film, um, Oppenheimer. But that's a story about a man, Robert Oppenheimer, who is so success set, so fixated on the completion, the successful completion of the atomic bomb, only to later conclude at the end of his life that it was the biggest mistake that he ever made. We simply just cannot predict how our current work and efforts will in the end be weighed in the judgment of time on the scales of history. And to live your life as if you can somehow predict the pathway towards success is again the height of foolishness. So here's the deal. Kohela wants us to face the world as it actually is. And when we do, what do we see about the world? It's so uncertain. We don't know how to predict the future. Uh, we don't know why and how things happen the way we do. You cannot guarantee success or failure, and you don't know when you're going to die. This is the world, Hebel. So much you don't know. Okay, so in light of all of that uncertainty, what do you think is the most sensible way to live? What do you think is the best way to live if life really is uncertain as he says it is? Well, you might say probably the way I played Monopoly as a child, right? <laughs> to play it very safe, to be as conservative as possible, to hang on to whatever resources you have, minimize risks, maximize predictability, right? Uh, do everything you can to keep as much control over your life as possible. That, it seems like, and I think many of us think that is the most sensible way to live. But listen to what Kohelet says. Look at verse one and two. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. 
Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. These verses are very difficult to interpret. Actually, English translations are vastly different. That's why I had the ESV read today and not the NIV, because they're so different. My favorite interpretation of the commentator that I read this week is that Kohela is talking about beer making, because apparently immersing bread in water was a form of making beer at the time. So basically he's saying, the world is so uncertain, what should you do? Make beer. I know some of you will appreciate that, like you, buddy, I know. Uh, (laughs) But what makes the most sense, um, I I actually don't think that's what he's talking about. What makes the most sense um, is that the teacher is talking about generous and charitable giving, right? Verse one, he says, cast or literally send out your bread. It's a way of saying, be be radically generous. Um, Verse two, he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. You know, in the Bible, seven is what? It's the number of perfection. And so he's saying, when you give, give to perfection and then give a little bit more. It would be like um, us saying, give to the nth degree. Um, And then he says, do it now. Do it right now. Don't sit around waiting for the right time to be generous. He says, verse four, if you're always worrying about the wind and the clouds, those things are totally out of your control, right? You'll never get around to doing the good work of sowing. If you're waiting for the right conditions, just do it. Or in verse six, don't give only when you can guarantee the success of your giving or guarantee that the results will be what you want them to be. You can't. So just get going. The world is so uncertain. Disaster could strike at any moment. So what should you do? Give and give. Sit loose to what you have. Cast your bread upon the waters. Now is the time. This is a very interesting perspective. It's very interesting. And it's also one that Jesus himself uh, subscribed to. In Luke 12, um, Jesus tells a story about a rich man. Kids, listen to this story. It's kind of an amazing story. And this rich man gets a lot of money. He has a big financial windfall. And he decides, hmm, what should I do with this money? I think I will build big, big barns to hold all my grain and hold all my money just in case something bad happens later, right? It makes a lot of sense. Hoard everything while you have plenty just in case disaster happens later on. So he builds all these big barns and he fills them up with his money and his grain. And then he gets out his lazy boy easy chair and he sits down and he says, self, take it easy relax, right? You have so much wealth laid up for yourself, you're gonna be okay. Well, guess what? That very night, God comes to him and he says, you fool, this night I am demanding from you your very soul and the good things you stored up, what good are they for you now? The end. It's kind of a scary story, right? And yet Jesus said, so is the one who lays up treasures for themselves and is not rich towards God. Y'all, Kohelet would love that story. He would love that story because Jesus is saying one of the greatest mistakes you could ever make as a human being is to treat your stuff and your money and your wealth and your life even as if it's guaranteed and you think that your money can somehow protect you from what is to come. You can't, says the teacher. You can't, says Jesus. So what should you do? Be rich towards God now while you can. Or cast your bread upon the waters now, Kohelet says, while you can. Take what you have. Plow it into the lives of others for their good. Give to the nth degree. Sit loose with your possessions while there's still time. What 
point? What's the point of your wealth if it might be taken from you next week? So give radically, give generously while there's still time, while you still have breath in your body, give and give and give. Now, some of you financial advisors out there are saying like, this guy needs to shut up. You know, this is bad investment strategy. Look, this isn't me, okay? This is Kohelet. And now at first glance, it, I, I, I admit, this sounds like terrible financial advice. Any good financial advisor will tell you that you should adopt the long-term view and to do the kind of work that he's talking about here is reckless financial strategy. Seems like Kohelet and Jesus are subverting some time-worn respected wisdom. But not really. Because if you think about it, Jesus is basically like a financial planner with a time machine. How great would that be to have a financial planner with a time machine, right? Um, Jesus does look into the future. He does want you to plan for the future. He just sees way ahead (laughs) into the future, far into eternity. He says in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. See, so he's not anti-investment. He does say, lay up treasures for yourself. He just advises you to invest in those things that actually last. He sees way ahead into eternity. He sees those things that are unaffected by storms and time and corrosion and death. And he says, let me suggest to you this portfolio, the kingdom of God. This is something to invest in. Many of the things we put our money into will burn up with the sun, but people are eternal. Love is eternal. Work done for the kingdom of God is eternal. Here's the question. How can you invest your life in a way that will bear dividends long after the sun has dissolved into dust? So worldly wisdom says, build bunkers and barns to prepare for disaster. You never know what might happen, so hoard and protect and store up just in case what you most fear occurs. That's worldly wisdom. Biblical wisdom says, you might be dead tomorrow. So take the best of what you have and the best of what you are and just give it away. Throw open the windows and the doors of your homes and your churches and your schools and and, and open up your lives and open up your wallets and open up your schedules and give to the nth degree and don't even worry about what happens to it because you can't control the outcome anyway. Only God does. Cast your bread upon the waters because in casting it wide, I promise you this, he says, it will return to you. You know, I know this is hard to imagine, so let me just give you an example of this. Rodney Stark is a secular sociologist who wrote a book called, listen to this title, The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. This is an academic secular sociologist. The fact that this tiny little group of Christians, about 120 of them, became the most dominant religious movement in three centuries is a fact that has perplexed academic historians and sociologists for ages. It just doesn't happen, right? Stark, in this book, argues convincingly that one of the main factors that explains the rapid rise of Christianity was their reckless, radical generosity. He says that Christians were, quote, conservative with their bodies and promiscuous with their possessions. So like they open up their homes and their wallets, but not their beds. 
It was like the opposite of what people did in the ancient world. <laughs> uh, they didn't just take care of their own poor, they took care of everybody else's poor. When people abandoned their baby girls, which was a common practice in the, first, in the ancient world and a practice called infanticide, the Christians took in all of the babies of their pagan neighbors. When plagues and pandemics hit, they did not run away to protect themselves. They stayed in the cities to take care of the sick, even at cost of their lives. What were these people doing? Casting their bread in the waters, giving to the nth degree, sowing in the morning, living radical, bold, some would say reckless lives. And guess what happened? It changed the world. So, so what would it look like for our church to be like this? What do you think? Let me just give you a few examples. I actually see many of you doing this. So I think, I think of a couple, um, you would never know by the cars that they drive and the house that they live in and the age of their appliances, you would never know how wealthy they are and how much money they give away. But what they seek to do, and actually I think this is a great practice for all of us, is they, they look at their income bracket and they say, we wanna give at the maximum as if we were at the very top of our income bracket and live as if we were at the very bottom. Or I think of, um, oh, you know them, but, you know, our dear covenant partners, Bob and Elaine Metcalf, who when their youngest son was going to college, they decided to literally leave everything behind, behind a, legal, uh, a lucrative legal practice and move to China. Why? Because they fell in love with China and they fell in love with the Chinese church. And they wanted to spend the very best years of their lives serving. Or I think of the widow among us who at significant cost to herself bought a new house but not for herself, for a refugee family who needed a home. Or I think of the many of you, so many of you, who have given your hard-earned money, money that you worked carefully to invest over many years that you could have used for yourself, and you've given it instead to our church and to the renovation of an old church building so that kids 20, 30, 40 years from now, kids that you will never meet, will be able to grow and flourish spiritually. Or I think of my friend Jason Wells, who started Mechanics of Faith, where he and his buddies, who just kind of sat around and fixed up cars, decided that they would start doing it for other people instead, for people on the edge, people for whom car ownership is essential to get to their jobs, but potentially can lead to financial ruin. Or I think of the young family that I know in our church who opens their home to parish group, even though it means their home never feels like it's ever clean. Or I think of the other family in our church who is so committed to the foster care crisis that they just keep on taking in more kids. Or I think about the teenager that I know instead of maintaining the rules, the very rigid and unspoken rules of their tribes and cliques, takes some crazy risks and deep and extends herself to people at her school who she is not supposed to be friends with. What are all these stories have in common? These are all true stories of people in our church. It's people who are casting their bread in the waters. People who are staring the uncertainty of the world in the face and saying, let's go for it. Let's be bold. Let's take risks. Let's take the best of what we have and the best of what we are and cast it wide. What a weird thing to do. Especially in our world, because we all feel the uncertainty of life more than ever. The world feels scary and alarming. The natural impulse is to protect ourselves and hold our children close and hoard our stuff and play it safe. In that mindset, the very worst thing would be to be caught flat-footed if disaster happens and not have what you need. But the way of the kingdom, <laughs> it's the opposite. It's upside down. It says the world is so uncertain, so let's open our lives. Let's open our hands. 
cast our bread wide. The worst thing in the world would be to get to the end of your life and realize you've never actually lived. You've wasted it. You, you, you've died with all these seeds in your pocket when you could have seen a zillion blooming fields. Think of the end of your life. Imagine the end of your life. What would you wish you could have done with your money, your stuff, your time, and your life? Kohelet says, do it now. Because you could be dead tomorrow. So do it. Do it. Cast your bread wide. It will return to you. So, what have we learned today? The world is so uncertain. There's so much we can't know. So how should you live? Well, don't play the game of life the way I played Monopoly. Don't play it safe. Don't hoard your stuff. Don't protect yourself. Instead, he says, cast your bread to the waters. Give to the nth degree. Wisdom is found in the end, not in what you keep, but what in you lose. Because as Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's wisdom. And of course, we do this not because it is the way of Kohelet, but because it is the way of Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. And look how that bread was cast. Look how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were promiscuously, wastefully, recklessly generous in casting grace upon the world through Jesus. Look how Jesus, the eternal Son, who had everything, gave everything, lost everything, liquidated himself because so that a rich harvest might come in. And now Jesus invites us, anyone who would come after me must take up their cross and follow me because whoever wants to save their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Dear friends, we serve an upside-down Messiah who won by losing, who triumphed by dying, who gained everything by giving everything away, and now he says, follow me because this is how to be human. This is how to be wise, to live in an uncertain world held by the certain love of God. And because we are so secure in his love, we are set free to cast our bread wide. All praise to the one who gave away everything to gain eternal harvest. Now filled with his love, may we go and do likewise. Amen. Let's pray. We do thank you, Lord Jesus, that you model such a countercultural, upside-down, cruciform wisdom that does not make sense to the world. That you went down to go up, that you lost everything to gain everything, that you died to give us life. So help us to be those who live our lives in a different way of wisdom, um, who count not what we have, but what we give away, um, who, who, who boast not in... in what we possess, but in what we lose. May we use the, the time that we have, even today, even today, uh, to just get busy casting our bread wide, knowing that ultimately it's you who control the harvest and that one day we'll see it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.